0: Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Aquadox, the podcast that keeps you up to date on all things aquatic medicine. I'm your host, Michelle Greenfield. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. James Bailey, a board-certified veterinary anesthesiologist who specializes in zoo and wildlife animals, particularly marine mammals. On this episode, we're going to discuss the intricacies of marine mammal anesthesia and some of the important principles Dr. Bailey has established over the years. So without further ado, hi, Dr. Bailey. Welcome to Aquadox.
1: I'm very happy to be here to talk to your people.
0: I'm excited to talk with you. I think we're going to have a great conversation today about marine mammal anesthesia. But before we go into all those details, can you give our listeners a brief description of an experience that helped shape where you are today?
1: I was in a particularly bad residency or negative situation in my residency. On a particularly bad day, after a particularly bad experience with a fellow resident, and I wandered out into the parking lot and was contemplating my life and what I was going to do. And I guess I had a strange look on my face. And a research associate who'd been there a long time, who knew me, was walking out and he looked back at me and he stopped and he came over to me and he asked if I was okay. And I was like, oh God, I just don't know what we're going to do with my life. This is all bad. And he said, okay, just come with me. I'll set up some space in my lab, and we'll figure it out. And if he hadn't done that, I wouldn't be where I am now. If he hadn't done that, I wouldn't have progressed. I wouldn't have figured out a way. And I guess uh, the point is there's going to be moments that are difficult, and you have to know how to pivot. Next thing I know, I was studying the zebra mussel clams that are invasive species in the Great Lakes and putting suction electrodes on their heart and measuring their electrocardiogram and determining how high potassiums were causing little tiny cardiac arrests. It was not something I ever intended to do, but I let myself go there. And if you'll just follow those opportunities, even if they're not exactly what you want to do, it'll take you places. That and a lot of other good mentors have come along and just helped me get back on track. Ending up at the University of Florida, I started to experience marine mammal anesthesia with Mike Walsh down at SeaWorld. And I like to change things a lot. Every six years, I typically do something new. Went into private practice to get closer to home and ended up with Bruce Heath, who was at Colorado State University doing wildlife captures. He couldn't go on a trip, asked if I could go. So I ended up in Lucian Islands in February and it was a rough trip, but it was a good experience. And then I expanded into more opportunities. And I end up at University of Florida again, Start doing more marine mammals. And then I start working with people in the marine mammal field and found that there was a problem to solve. And this new problem was marine mammal anesthesia. There were difficulties and I found that I could be useful in figuring that out. So you got to let opportunities come to you. I tell students be useful and you will get used and then try to work within a system to create change, learn how it's done and then you can introduce new things. So I've been doing this for, well, since 2011, so 11 years now, and we've made a lot of difference. It doesn't sound like a lot of difference for the time, but these things have to be accepted and we've accepted a new level of care.
0: Yeah, no, and I love how you highlight the pivoting. I feel like that comes up a lot on this podcast and you do have to be willing to just go for anything. But before we go into the marine mammal anesthesia, You mentioned that you were doing electrocardiograms, so measuring and listening to the heart on clams. I'm really curious how you put the electrodes on the clams because they're so tiny. How are you measuring those things?
1: So on the zebra mussel clam, yes, it is very small. And we had to standardize things. we were making our own water, a specific hardness and purity, feeding them their own food in a regular dosage and gluing them to a little plate with dental epoxy. And then I had to do a little tiny dissection through their shell to be able to expose their single ventricle heart. You have two and a single ventricle and a very interesting little heart. And then I was creating microelectrodes, pulling glass pipettes to a very fine tip And in the method I was using, it's a suction electrode. We put suction on this pipette that had electrolyte solution in it so we could make contact with the heart. I'm not going to get a true action potential, like if I penetrated a myocardial cell, but I can come close to that. And then we can determine changes in the action potential and published it as a thesis. It was an interesting puzzle to try and solve on an extremely low budget. I think I had a thousand dollars for a semester to figure it all out. Wow. Just learned a lot of new methods of study and gain skills and try to utilize those later as well.
0: And how does an action potential relate to a patient's heartbeat?
1: The action potential would correlate to a mechanical event. You would see an action potential and then you'd see the actual physical contraction of the heart. But you could have some sort of dissociation and not have a very good contraction. So an action potential would be informative of the electrical events taking place, but doesn't necessarily translate into mechanical activity.
0: Gotcha. That's super helpful. So let's transition now to your work with dolphin anesthesia. Can you start off by telling us the state of the field when you started?
1: When I jumped in, there were more often negative outcomes with marine mammal anesthesias. To compensate for that, they had improved non-invasive monitoring and they had at least supported ventilation to some degree, but the outcomes were still often negative if it was a longer procedure. So a rule of thumb was not to take more than two to two and a half hours on a procedure on a pinniped or you're likely to have a problem. Well, that's not good when I'm trying to do bilateral cataracts and they take three to four hours. So you end up doing a single eye instead of doing both. And that's not really beneficial to the patient to have to wait to have the other eye repaired, particularly if both are luxated. So what we did is started to improve on monitoring and changing some methodology. To give you an example, there is a combination of drugs that's common that's published using midazolam, butorphanol, and meditomidine or dexmeditomidine. That's a decent combination for a relatively aggressive immobilization of a young, healthy animal. And it works nicely in wild captures. It works well for short procedures on healthy animals. But the alpha-2 agonists are profoundly cardiopulmonary depressive and may not be the best choice for older animals. Cataract subjects are generally geriatric animals. And so, as I always say, if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Everybody is using a more potent cocktail on geriatric animals and having negative outcomes. When I came into things, there were around 70 animals done in that method for cataract surgeries, for Dr. Collitz. and of those, 25% were dead shortly after anesthesia or during. So that suggests you have a problem. And that's how I came into things. We need to rethink how we give drugs. We have to do a better job of monitoring. So we introduced direct arterial blood monitoring, blood gases, arterial blood gases, not just venous blood gases, and then enhanced the ventilatory support. Over the past 10 years, the standard of care has dramatically improved such that one of my longer cases involved CT and bilateral cataracts went for nine hours and it recovered within minutes after finishing with no negative consequences. So we've dramatically improved the level of care so that we can extend procedures and do procedures that require longer anesthesia.
0: I mean, it's amazing. You can go from two hours with potentially negative outcomes to nine hours with great outcomes. What were some of the key things that you changed for these pinnipeds? So the sea lions and the seals that was able to accomplish that?
1: Part of what we did was simply apply techniques we use in terrestrial animals. Simple things like providing cushioning, padding that has give, so they can distribute the weight evenly so that there's no pressure points that lead to nerve injury or muscle injury. The next step is to make sure that there's adequate blood flow to the muscle. To do that, we have to make sure they have good cardiac output or blood flow out of the heart. And with that will be adequate oxygen delivery. To do that, we have to monitor blood pressure. That wasn't really being monitored. So we had to get people to accept that we can place a catheter in an artery and get blood pressure data and arterial blood gas data to know that the blood contains enough oxygen to deliver to the tissues. So more direct measured data to tell us that we're doing it properly so that we can assure that those areas are properly protected, knowing what's going on rather than guessing. Now, there are non-invasive ways of detecting or making a guess at blood pressure, which could tell you about cardiac output, but blood pressure cuffs and oscillometric techniques, for example, have not been validated in the species and don't tend to work well and certainly don't work on a dolphin. So we needed to have more direct information. We are always working toward non-invasive means of doing things, but we don't have anything good yet. So historically we were just winging it, keeping it short and keeping them light. And now we actually know what's going on and that makes it safer.
0: That's very cool. Can you also talk about how animals actively participate in their own veterinary care?
1: One of the things we try to do with the marine mammal species is also take advantage of behaviors. We really wanna balance between behaviors, a little bit of manual or mechanical restraint, and then chemical restraint or drugs. When we go just to drugs, To accomplish the goal, we're having to use more powerful drugs, and that has more negative effects on cardiopulmonary performance or the heart and the lungs, and we can have negative outcomes from that. If the people who train them, train them to do behaviors, we can make it a lot safer. So if they're trained to go into a squeeze cage, for example, and trained to not be uncomfortable in the squeeze cage, we can use that behavior plus a little mechanical restraint so that we can deliver drugs safer. We don't have to dart them. We can hand inject. Better yet, they train them to take an injection without squeeze. Better yet, we teach them to induce anesthesia by mask behaviorally. They've done that at several locations, and I just assisted one uh, a week ago. So if they take the time to train, and if the facilities give the people the time they need to train, we can make anesthesia much safer.
0: I think that theme comes up again and again, this idea of training, whether it's for anesthesia or for blood collection, that relationship between the veterinary staff and the training staff working together for patient care. I mean, that's what gets me excited.
1: Medical behaviors and husbandry behaviors are mandatory. It shouldn't be a question. I do understand it requires a lot of time, but it definitely is worthwhile and it really should be part of a geriatric population's experience. Waiting until the geriatrics to get them to do that though, isn't ideal. So medical and or husbandry behaviors are invaluable in the safety aspects.
0: Yeah. Super, super important. So since you just highlighted our sea lion friends, I was wondering if we could talk a little more about what that process looks like in a dolphin. First off, intubating is a very different process with dolphins. And then, you know, as you said before, you can't put a blood pressure cuff on their tail fluke. So. What does that process look
1: like? Well, for a dolphin, they normally breathe through their blowhole, which is their nose. So they're obligated to breathing through their nose. That airway is very small and it's controlled by muscles that make it hard to pass the tube. It has been done, but it's not a typical approach because you have to use a smaller tube. The standard technique is to stick the tube in orotracular or through the mouth into the airway. And we do that by dislodging this modified larynx of theirs, the access to their airway is going up into their nose and we have to pull it down into their mouth. We reach down by hand and we pull it down. And then the classic technique is to put two fingers into the airway and use that to guide a tube into the airway. But we're doing it blindly by palpation, by feeling our way. There isn't an easy way to do it visually because it's a very tight space. Usually we're providing some sedation, midazolam, a Valium-type drug, possibly an opioid a morphine-type drug, but with limited use on that at this time. Then we use propofol to induce anesthesia. Then we put them on a gas anesthesia after we have intubated, as described. But the point is that the drugs we use in this species, they will stop breathing when we give them those drugs. So we have to get in there and intubate quickly, and we have to provide ventilatory support. So we have to breathe for them. So traditionally, when we ventilate or breathe for a patient by hand, we just squeeze a bag, inflate the lungs and let go. So we're starting at normal room pressure, ambient pressure, barometric pressure, and we increase pressure to a high point so that the lungs inflate to a normal volume or tidal volume. And then we release again. So we can replace that with a machine and have a machine start at zero pressure, deliver a pressure to create a breath or a tidal volume, and then have it release. That's a conventional controlled mechanical ventilation, CMV. The problem with that method is that it allows for the little tiny sacs in the lungs, of the alveoli, to collapse. They're going to collapse over time more and more, particularly in larger species like a dolphin or a walrus or an elephant. There are other ways to ventilate. Sam Ridgway, he with Forrest Bird, who made ventilators starting in the 1960s, came up with a ventilator that would breathe for a dolphin the way a dolphin breathes. So marine mammals, particularly dolphins, do a breath hold. They exhale quickly, inhale quickly, and hold their breath. And they're usually in the water swimming, and then they'll come back to surface, exhale and inhale, and hold their breath again. That's an apneustic breathing pattern a breath holding pattern. So they thought back in the 60s, let's make a ventilator that does that. Well, that's not the reason to do it, but it was a very good idea because what that does is holds pressure in the lungs and keeps those little sacs, little alveoli from collapsing. And over time, you're actually gonna ventilate more of the lung more appropriately. The only thing that they didn't quite have right is they let the pressure go back to zero or ambient pressure, and had a period of stagnation. And that allowed for alveoli to collapse. But it was better than the other way of conventional controlled mechanical ventilation. That was called apneustic plateau. What we came up with is based on work done on the human side. So in the late 1960s, we were doing apneustic plateau. 20 years later, a physician anesthesiologist, John Downs at University of Florida Shands, came up with a method of ventilating and said, well, why are we going from zero and up? Why don't we go from a pressure and let the pressure drop, very much like this apneustic plateau technique, but he hadn't heard of apneustic plateau. So here it is in the late 80s, and he's trying this on humans, showing that if you hold a pressure and you release to create a breath or a tidal volume, then you had better expansion of the alveoli, less atelectasis or collapse of these alveoli, these little sacs in the lung. And he published that work, and he'd been doing that for decades, and here we are 30 years later. I was at the University of Florida teaching as faculty. My resident in NSD goes across the street to Shans, sees Dr. Downs give the lecture, comes back and says... Do you think that, that would work in horses, this airway pressure release ventilation, as Dr. Downs called it, or later with a modification, apneustic anesthesia ventilations? I said I didn't know if that technique would work in a horse, but it was very much what I've been trying to do in marine mammals. None of the ventilators available could do that mode of ventilation. So we got a hold of Dr. Downs and we found a way to create that mode of ventilation and later got funded to do a project to build a ventilator that ventilated that way and more readily preventing collapse of the lung collapse of the alveolar sacs in the lung and getting pretty good performance, uh, pretty good outcomes.
0: Super interesting. So where does the marine meal dive response fit into all this?
1: Well, marine species have the ability to control their heart rate and their blood flow, even regional blood flow, in what you're calling a dive reflex. So a conscious Waddell seal strapped to a board and dunk will have a very profound dive reflex. His heart will slow way down. It'll stop blood flow to his kidneys and other organs to reduce the metabolic rate, utilize as much of the oxygen for as long as it can. This dive reflex is very profound in a subject that is forced into a dive situation. But that very same animal, when allowed to dive on its own, has been shown to have less of a profound dive reflex. So there is a factor of an unknown ability to rise to surface to ventilate versus a known ability to rise and surface to ventilate. So there is a dive reflex. It is useful for diving and prolonging a foraging effort. Elephant seals, they've got one documented as staying down for 45 minutes. It is an amazing reflex. Unfortunately, there is no data at all to suggest that that is present during anesthesia. In fact, the only information really comes from the human side and shows that the dive reflex is blunted by anesthesia. So, what a lot of people may be seeing as it relates to anesthesia is early on before they're fully anesthetized, or if they're inadequately anesthetized, there may be a dive reflex type response. Response, or more likely, they're seeing other trigeminal-based reflexes like laryngeal reflex. When you intubate or you force an airway open, you stimulate the larynx, and you can cause bradycardia, point of cardiac arrest in some situations. When you tug on the eyeballs for an eye surgery, like enucleation, removing the eye, you cause an oculocardiac reflex, and that will lead to bradycardia. Also, if you're not breathing and you're running out of oxygen, your heart will probably slow down. So hypoxemia might be interpreted as a dive reflex. So we really have to look at it more carefully. I'm not going to say there's not a dive reflex because they have an amazing dive reflex. I am going to question whether it's actually that much of a part of anesthesia. Because in fact, when we intubate a dolphin and get it under anesthesia and achieve an appropriate gas anesthetic level as measured by what they're expiring, their heart rate normalizes. When you first put them out of water and beach them, they're basically getting a bit squished and pushing on their chest. And we call that a valcile maneuver, you can actually push on your own chest at your sternum and you can cause your heart rate to slow down. That's probably happening to them. So they're sitting there breathing in and out and their heart rate's going slow and it's going fast and going slow and going fast. But as soon as we blunt that with anesthesia, their heart rate normalizes. So you're going to see a lot of patients that actually lose what's perceived as a dive reflex once you've got full control on an appropriate anesthetic level.
0: So just curious, what is that heart rate range that you're looking for, for a normal dolphin swimming around, but then a dolphin that's being ventilated? And when are you getting concerned?
1: So heart rates for a dolphin can vary and they can vary within the individual. There is a change in the heart rate associated with breathing when beached, when not in the water, that can be significant. They can run up above 100 and drop down to 30 during some of these events. More often it's closer together, maybe they're 70 over 30, or maybe they're 100 over 50, but that has a lot to do with their own individual response.
0: So there really aren't a lot of people in the country and honestly, the world who feel comfortable with marine mammal anesthesia. And, and you're one of the folks who does. So for those who have no experience, but are interested in gaining some, or for those folks who maybe have some experience, but are always interested in learning more and improving their techniques, what advice and tips do you have for them?
1: There are other people that feel comfortable doing marine mammal anesthesia, and they have historically felt comfortable with it prior to my involvement, but we have managed to improve their methods as well. One of the things I try to do is anytime I go somewhere, I try to have it rub off. So I'm there, not just as a person to perform marine mammal anesthesia, but to teach it. So we try to make it a teaching situation in as much as possible. That's not always totally feasible, but the objective is that other people learn to do it. So if you're present and I'm there, someone will be learning to place catheter. Somebody will be learning to ventilate in a different way. Me doing every single procedure is not a solution. Me teaching others to improve their technique may help. And that's just a philosophical thing. You have to adopt this and choose to be this. But it is my feeling that you've never really succeeded until you replace yourself. I'm even embracing that more fully this past year by heavily working on a couple individuals who are very interested and very willing to participate so that they can take over. And I would say that anybody who's interested should just seek out those kind of opportunities. And hopefully that philosophy rubs off on individuals I'm training too, that they too will need to replace themselves. And the only way to truly succeed in improving marine mammal anesthesia everywhere is give experience to as many people as possible. Whenever you go somewhere, make sure they understand what you're doing and understand the reasons you're doing it so they can repeat it. The problem for most people is they just don't get to do it often. I work with excellent veterinarians all over the place. They just don't get to do it every day. And so if you can come in and make that easier and safer and help them improve their skills, that works out for everybody.
0: Well, that's an amazing philosophy.
1: In keeping with that philosophy of replacing yourself, I was fortunate enough to work with Dr. Sam Ridgeway on this project to build a ventilator that did what he did 50 years ago, a little bit better, and uh, feed into his desire to improve veterinary anesthesia. I was really lucky have had the opportunity to spend time with him and help achieve both his goals and mine in these last years of his life.
0: And many in this aquatics field know Dr. Ridgeway is the dolphin doctor and he's a legend and he achieved so much and really helped establish this field. And so I'm appreciative for any of the folks who have taken some of the things that he worked on and continue to improve them. And I'm glad that we can continue to see improvement in the field of anesthesia, but really it all comes down to the amazing work that he started that we're able to continue building today. So he will be missed by many, but I'm glad to see the progress that we continue to build from his early teachings.
1: He was very important to this process. If uh, he hadn't chosen to work with me, I wouldn't have built this ventilator and advances wouldn't have been made. And it's, uh, it's important.
0: I have learned so much today about just different techniques of anesthesia, the importance of it. And thank you, Dr. Bailey, for having you here today on Aquadox.
1: Well, thanks for having me. Uh, I enjoyed it. And I hope that your folks get something out of it. And I hope to meet some of them.
0: Yeah, maybe we'll see you IAAAM. First one in person in four years.
1: Uh, I hope to be there.
0: And that's going to do it for this week's episode of Aquadox. I'd like to thank Dr. Bailey for being on the show this week, our sponsors, Wavma and AAFE, as well as all of you, our wonderful listeners, for tuning in. As always, check out our Facebook and Instagram to stay up to date on the latest Aquadox news. And if you've got an extra moment, please rate us five stars on Apple and Spotify podcasts. I'm Michelle Greenfield. Stay healthy, stay safe, and we'll see you next time here on Aquadox.